When an individual is admitted to the hospital, they're quite often hooked up to a panoply of monitoring devices, all designed to help the doctors and nurses caring for them meet their medical needs. Increasingly, hospitals are exploring how machine learning can help them better monitor patient vital signs. And that's a focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media journalism and film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me are regular panelists, John Baylor, chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, former chair of media, journalism, and film. Our guest today is Glenn Wright Colopy. Colopy is a machine learning scientist who's worked in the healthcare, biomedical, and pharmaceutical industries since 2010. His primary research interests are in probabilistic modeling, time series analysis, and stochastic optimization. Colopy's been doing research in healthcare since 2011, and his primary machine learning goal is to provide presentations that people can enjoy and learn from. Glenn, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, well, thank you for having me. That was that was very impressive, Rosemary. I think I'm going to have to steal you from my own podcast. <laughs> <laughs> hey, no way, man. Keep your hands off. <laughs> Who knows how long John has left, you know? Uh, <laughs> I, I got a long runway. What are you this saying, is starting. Glenn? This is starting well already. So, Glenn, before we get started talking about the patient monitoring stuff, I think when people talk about machine learning, I don't know if there's always a, a great grasp of what that is exactly. Especially when it gets talked about in relation to sort of you know AI and these other things. Could you take a moment to explain how you define machine learning in your work so we have a, a grounded understanding? Yeah, definitely. And I think you have hit on something that's important because uh, one thing that I've noticed is that uh, a lot of statisticians and data scientists, they feel very comfortable with those terms, data science, statistics, things like that. But when you start talking about things like machine learning, they all of a sudden start to believe, let's say, well, does, do, do these topics apply to me? Um, and I believe the answer is yes. Machine learning to me means a few things. Uh, one, it means that it's many of the tasks that uh, statisticians or data scientists or general analysts perform, but components of them are now <clears throat> needing to be automated. So essentially that a machine is in charge of one or more components of the data analysis task. And so in the simplest thing, this could be simply um, processing a data stream and outputting some summary statistic. In my case, uh, what it means typically is that the machine is responsible for uh, specifying, taking the data, uh, automate, automatically cleaning it, specifying the model from a selection of models, and of course, uh, parameterizing or performing inference on those models. And then the final step, which is if that model says something interesting, letting the human being know. So yeah, for me, uh, the machine learning bit, if you want to just have a simple requirements, the machine has to do some of the learning for you. And so for me, that means uh, typically model selection, inference, and then uh, letting, alerting or letting people know what, what it knows. So, so Glenn, one of the things I really enjoyed uh, when I attended a talk that you, you gave uh, earlier this year was, was just thinking about patient monitoring in a different way. You know, and I, you know, I see so many times I've, you looked over time and you'd say, uh, whether it's growth curves for kids, 
And you'd say, mm-hmm. okay, is this, you know, do you go outside of these particular bounds based on the population at various age points? Or whether you're, you're kind of your FEV is less than some percentage of normal. So there's, those, there's some historical patterns by which we would monitor kind of these vital characteristics of patients. Can, can you give us a, a little bit of kind of the foundation of what was done in terms of patient monitoring and some of the ways that you've been thinking about some of the tools that you use to customize and personalize those? Yeah, so um, what was done, and I think this is also a very good description of what is done currently, is um, that when a doctor or a nurse is trying to identify whether or not a patient is deteriorating. So typically patients in hospitals, they are there because they're not healthy to begin with, but whether or not they're acutely deteriorating is another issue. So already we're having to say that this uh, segment of the population that we're looking at is typically not the normal healthy population that we already have. But the question is, not all those unhealthy people die or have a cardiac arrest. And so the question is, who's going to have those more extreme adverse events? And are they going to have them tomorrow versus in the next hour? And so the easiest way to do that is obviously to examine their physiology. So um, we have those from medical uh, dramas. We've seen the uh, heart rate monitors and the, the bedside monitors that show you things like heart rate respiratory rate, uh, blood oxygen saturation, um, your blood pressure. And they look at those at an individual snapshot in time and decide, is this patient abnormal? And their reference is typically, well, what do other patients on the ward look like? So the simplest way would be, imagine that you have, we'll keep it super simple. Uh, we have a Gaussian distribution, a nice big old bell curve over heart rate and says, does this patient look like they're in the tails and therefore more acutely abnormal? Or are they more towards the center and therefore at least this uh, metric is not something from which we can infer that they're deteriorating. And so that's obviously, that's a very sensible heuristic. If you did not have computational um, resources at your disposal, that is a very good heuristic. And just as a quick note, one thing that nurses in particular are good at is actually they've sort of front run this uh, sort of intellectual process of it in the sense that they start noticing, for example, what a patient's own specific ranges look like. So by virtue of um, whereas a machine won't do that, the nurses are quite effective at identifying whether or not a patient's deviating from their individual range. So I think that describes pretty well what is currently done, um, that we have a reference population. Uh, It might change a little bit from one clinical setting to the other, but effectively we have a single reference population. And that's how we decide uh, whether or not uh, a patient is abnormal. Now the question is what can we do better than that? And there's quite a few things. For example, looking at an individualized range. So the one of the first things that if, if someone's like hopping into this field of uh, patient biosystem monitoring, one of the first things I'd really just ask you to do is break up all your data by patient, look at that patient's individual range, sort them by median. You'll see this, usually see this really nice like sigmoidal uh, sort of distribution across different patients. And um, so the, the issue there is that essentially um, patients occupy different ranges and that the population-based range is nothing like an individual patient-based range. And then from there, we can go into things like time series, but I think that's the first motivation. Hey, Glenn, in, in your work, you probably have to talk to doctors and nurses. So how hard is it to explain what you're doing to medical people who don't understand machine learning? And is that part of what you do? It's quite easy to explain if you don't like attack them with equations. So I think that's like the ground rule. I I think it does help. And one of my main motivators for, uh, as John's seen, I 
invest very heavily in the visual aspects when I present. And that is, I think, a pretty much a direct product of the fact that they won't follow your math because the math, frankly, is irrelevant to the output, the output that they can consume. But they have a really good intuition when you show them your machine learning in action. So when you show them a uh, Gauss, they aren't going to understand what a Gaussian process is, but they can certainly see that you fit a time series with, you know, a mean and a standard deviation around a time series and that you're forecasting forward. So I think it's one of those things where they are, they are experts in the domain. And so that expertise in the domain does give them a very good intuition. You just need to basically meet them halfway in meeting that intuition. So I've found that um, even when they don't understand a model per se, they can also, they can very much understand why you wanted to create that model. For example, um, that, oh, we want this model to be flexible because I don't think that a patient's time series is a linear function. Yes, like they can understand that intuitively. Um, and they can also understand uh, when your machine learning model flags something, for example, a rapid drop or rapid escalation. They don't need the equations, but they can intuitively understand why the machine learning flagged that. And I think that that's something where you can certainly meet there on the application side. And one other caveat on that is, of course, that as many of us know, statistical uh, education is a part of uh, medical training. Um, however, it is typically in the area of, you know, like the more traditional regressional analysis, uh, Cox proportional hazard models. So they are statistically trained. And some of the best clinicians I've worked on are effectively Jedi when it comes to like really understanding, applying specific statistical models to uh, the problems that they're familiar with. And it's only getting them to reach that other, that next level that is really needed. Since you've called some of them Jedi, I'm wondering who the Sith are, but uh, yeah, we won't, we, we won't, we don't need to go there. <laughs> in that case, in that one, it was a very unlucky grad student who uh, misinterpreted some statistics. And oh. uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, I, the Sith was more like when Anakin came in. Oh, never mind, I won't go. <laughs> yeah, we're 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 going to a, a, an entirely different direction than any of us anticipated. Thank yeah. you for that. That uh, so, let me ask you: as uh, you're as you're thinking about these these efforts and these endpoints, can you give some examples where you think that that the these proposals have been just remarkably superior to kind of past? sort of practice where you're referencing some general population and indices within a general population and maybe sometimes when it's been hard to work. So just a couple of explicit examples. Yeah. Um, and actually, I think one example, and I'll just quickly say, I was not involved in this example, but it is too good of an example uh, not to have. Back in 2008, so the a doctoral student's work who preceded mine, it was a collaboration between the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center and Oxford University. And uh, just for those who aren't as familiar with critical care monitoring, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center is a premier research university in this regard. And um, obviously Oxford's pretty well known too. Um, and so it was a very good collaboration between these two groups. And what the engineering department came up with was a very simple kernel density estimate. So essentially they didn't do any of the time series analysis stuff that I did. They simply modeled more appropriately the actual distributions that you'd expect from population. And they did some data cleaning and things like that. And when the trial was done, the nurses and the clinical staff refused to stop using the algorithm to help them monitor patients. It was just too useful. And oh, so, wow. yeah, it's like, it's like, honestly, I, I wish, I wish my success stories were as good as that one, but it, it was like, you couldn't pry it out of their hands because it was so successful. And uh, statistically, the modeling wasn't complex. You know, the kernel density estimate is something that I think it was developed in the 1950s. 
which is means still good because people still use it. Um, but I think the main benefit was that it just simply uh, helped the clinician visualize what components of each vital sign were contributing to this score of anomaly. And so it gave them enough of an interpretation that they could uh, view it, value it. It wasn't black boxing anything, and they could just appreciate it. And it wasn't capturing odd dynamics. It was simply better describing the population at hand. And I think that that's probably one of the best stories and something that I'd like to aspire to in my own career. Now, since I'm here, I might as well try to wave my own flag uh, on some things that have gone well. Um, <laughs> so my focus has been on personalized modeling. And so I think I think I have two good examples. And the, the value fundamentally behind them was um, they were, I would say, from a machine learning perspective, they're fairly modest in the sense that it wasn't anything too complex as long as like personalizing the Gaussian process in real time isn't considered complex. Um, but um, basically both these were highly visualizable. One of them was identifying uh, effectively step changes or erratic dynamics in the time series. So essentially what we're doing is a considered a classical stick breaking problem um, for engineering or basically or change point detection problem for statistics. And what we're doing is we're involved in this time series and trying to identify when there are rapid deteriorations from an expected trend. And doctors like that because it was very interpretable. Like I could just show you a picture of every time that this thing went off, as in when the alarm went off. And more often than not, it actually looked like something that someone said, oh yes, I actually know when this happened. Or, you know, that this was some time when uh, the patient was sedated. And that's why we see this trend change, or I'm actually glad that you brought this to my attention. And so that bit, um, while they wouldn't really care about the underlying uh, modeling mechanisms, they could intuitively see why that was valuable. And another quick one was screen dictionaries of healthy patients. Um, so this was one of the ones that Oxford University actually uh, patented. And what they did, uh, well, what I did was I had a huge number of healthy patients. Um, so as, as we know, in most data that you care about, you have fewer examples of the stuff you care about the most. So the critically ill patients, you don't have too much data on them, whereas the patients who do not uh, deteriorate, plenty of, usually have plenty of data on them. So what I did was I thought, was like, well, I might as well make use of that huge swath of healthy patient data. And so I went through their data and automated this process where I take chunks of a time series across these you know, hundreds of patients and at hundreds of points of time across these hundreds of patients, I would look at the date, time series, I would fit it with the Gaussian process, make sure it was cleaned up, and then I would summarize that with a um, information theoretic. I would almost say metric, but because that's actually not correct, but you know, a, a measurement. And um, that would allow us to quickly sort through and see, does a new patient look like healthy patients? And if they okay. don't, then they go on, yeah. But I, I, think that, I think that was an example. Again, it was very visually intuitive because I could show them this dictionary and I could show them the process and I could show them the comparison. Um, and even like I could show them with a few clicks, this is the closest healthy patient to your current patient. And, uh, you know, obviously that, that's helpful and it does build that trust as opposed to saying, this is black box, you're never going to understand. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with Glenn wright Colopy about machine learning and healthcare. Glenn, one of the things that I'm interested in, because uh, I do study um, new media technologies differently than what you're doing, is the issue of sort of bias feeding into the algorithms and the architectures that we use, right? So um, there's a lot of debate around sort of the way particular things are measured and whether, you know, you're bringing biases that you don't recognize into into sort of the machines that you're using, right? And so I wonder, what advice would you have for someone who 
is interested in sort of pursuing machine learning about about ways of of avoiding importing those biases that sort of sometimes shape the way we measure things without us really knowing. Yeah, definitely. And I can give you actually an example. I'll give you an example of what you're talking about first. And then I will talk about why um, some hints for uh, avoiding this. And I think there's a really good way to actually circumvent these issues. Um, And so the example is that there's actually a study It was also uh, done at my former group in in Oxford. And they actually looked at quantifying the difference between, so uh, as we talked about before, um, these reference distributions are obviously drawn from a population. And you can probably already guess where I'm going with this, but patients who fall into and go into the critical care ward are typically not, you know, 25 year old healthy people. They are by and large, they're usually on the older side of the population. They're typically less healthy to begin with. And so a simple question that arises is, well, if we look at this, this ward's information, how much of your metric is effectively just being uh, determined by the age of the, of the people? So effectively, will you get a better, uh, I'm not sure better treatment's correct word, but is this metric effectively bias in favor of helping the older population and effectively is not well suited for a younger population. Old people, for example, have uh, stiffer arteries. And so effectively, the question is, to what extent is the care you're getting a function of you being compared to an an older population? And that is actually fairly quantifiable. And so now the question is, well, what do you do about it? And simple examples are, you know, obviously you start stratifying for by these other things like age, like sex. Um, and, um, by clinical condition. You know, there's a crazy one. Why don't we just stratify by what the actual clinical condition of the person is at the time and use that as a reference. Now, here's the fun workaround. When you look at personalized modeling, you're effectively circumventing a lot of that work because you're literally looking at just modeling that one person. It doesn't matter at that time that you are a, um, you're a 25 year old male that's already embedded in your time series. That outcome is already there. So um, you don't have to say, well, what is the, you know, the, average person's heart rate over time. You don't even have to say what's the average 25 year old's heart rate over time because you have Joe's heart rate right here and you can start measuring and providing your inference around that. So the expectation is already embedded and that's just a matter of stratifying your data and uh, working through it. So I think that is something that is very promising. Now, the challenge that comes with that, of course, is you now just effectively ignored a large amount of other data there. And so the question is, well, is like, and I'd say one, a lot of it probably doesn't matter once you have that one person's data. But at the same time, um, you are flying blind with uh, regard to having large amounts of data. So what do you do with that? And that's where I think the machine learning comes in, where how do you provide principled uh, inference around that? And that's why, for example, basing on parametric methods are so popular in our field because they provide flexibility. Um, they provide a, a framework by which to incorporate um, the knowledge that we'd like to embed into the, into the systems. So yeah, it's, it, is, it is an interesting question. Obviously, clinical research is heavily invested in properly stratifying these different issues. It's, I think it's very different than, for example, like the big tech type stuff where, frankly, a lot of them haven't really, I don't know if they thought about it, but it doesn't seem like they have. Um, and um, whereas this is very much embedded, subgroup analysis is embedded in medical statistics. Like medical statistics is like, is subgroup analysis. Um, and so I think that that issue is something that's much more already at the front of the field. And this just further adds on to it. You know, as I, as, as, you're, as you're talking about this, I, I love this idea of, of the, the patient monitoring where your subject will be their own control. 
mm-hmm. that you're essentially monitoring my trajectory and you're looking for deviations from what is what you would predict as normal given my record of this. It's it sounds like uh, you know that that kind of gives you that complete uh, avoidance of this issue of of constructing a reference population in some way that would be relevant to me as a patient or so anyone else as a patient. I'm I'm curious if if uh, you know this kind of formulation has just been in- tremendously facilitated by by all of the uh, internet of things devices as well you know that all of this all of the monitoring and measuring devices that we can have you know routinely in our own in our own lives or as well as now being integrated into to medical contexts uh yeah definitely so first thing that i'll say is and i think this is very important for like the very eager people in machine learning is that we aren't throwing out the old metrics you know, the old baseline univariate threshold-based metrics, we aren't throwing those out. They're still there. Um, you know, if you have a heart rate of 200, I don't need a personalized metric. I don't need a personalized <laughs> metric for that. Like, you're either at the end of a 10K and you're an Olympic 10K athlete or you're in trouble. And, um, you know, it's one of those two things. And so um, we aren't throwing those out. And I think one of the very important things that machine learning people need to re- uh, remember, especially in medical fields, is that our goal isn't to supplant, it's to supplement. And so, um, yeah, so I, I, I think that that's one thing. And I've always tried to position my work as here's a, this method is a useful supplement to either current heuristics or other algorithms that are already out there. Um, so even, I know in machine learning, we always like to have our battles of the algorithms and say, ah, this one now overthrows the other one as if it's like King Kong beating Godzilla. And like, no, it isn't. And these, it's like, no, King Kong, Godzilla, and the, uh, I don't know what, uh, the Empire State Building, they're all just going to get along together. And um, they're all there and they all supplement for this fuller narrative. So now back to your question, which I have deviated from about, there's the Internet of Things issue. And I think that this is interesting for two things. And maybe I'll preach a bit to uh, the statistical audience on this issue. A lot of these benefits have come due to the hard work of software engineers and hardware engineers. And I think that, well, yes, we do get wrapped up in the data that's being acquired in these things. Don't forget, like there are other uh, STEM professionals out there really laying that foundation. And frankly, that found if that foundation were not there, no one would care what a statistician had to say because the data wouldn't be there. Um, and even the data quality um, would not be there. And I'll admit I'm a bit biased in this regard because I actually worked um, at a uh, medical device startup. What I think was very important was, well, I do understand that there was, they're very excited to have me because, you know, data scientists with the pedigree and the research and all uh, accolades and that type of stuff. But what shouldn't be forgotten was that the fundamental product, which was a medical device that people can take home and it will uh, reliably, and reliably is a keyword, wirelessly monitor them over the course of their day, was a huge engineering feat separate from anything to do with data science. And that was where a lot of the main benefit was. And it's very nice to be able to sit on top of that data generating process and enjoy that. So yeah, I know, I I feel like I've gone a little bit off topic there, but no, the IoT, Internet of Things, the wearables, they are really promising. I think that this is where people are really start appreciating these. I've actually talked about this a little bit that I think wearables, there are some, uh, I've called them like the cryptids of physiology where there are, there are, odd physiologies out there. And there are weird physiological mechanisms that we haven't learned yet because we haven't yet observed them. And they are out there. I think um, I've, from some of my friends I've talked to, we've noticed 
I know this sounds vague, but there are some very odd physiologies in ways that we thought that these measurements were, for example, uniform or homogenous within a patient, at least over small time periods. And there's evidence, for example, that they are not even homogenous over like a second by second basis. And that some of, for example, of our data channels are actually a fusion, can be a fusion of multiple other mechanisms over, over time. And I think that's, that's something where um, the scientific discovery aspect that data science is going to uh, bring is very important. I know that um, in machine learning, we get very interested in the prediction and the automation and things like that, but we shouldn't forget that there's a scientific discovery process um, that we can be leaders in. And I think that that's probably the most interesting thing that's going to come out of wearables. Um, and so well, it's, I, I hope that the rest of the field is, is equally interested in this so they can pursue it as opposed to it just sort of falls out as a natural product of research over time. Hey, Glenn, uh, speaking of off topic, this is kind of a broader general question about living in this kind of scary time where there's a resistance to science, a resistance to data that's spreading through the cultures, not just in the States, of course. How do you go about explaining the importance of your work and the work of data science in general to both the general population that sort of doesn't understand or to an idiot journalist like myself who may need kind of a primer in the kind of work you're doing and why it's important. Could you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah. Well, first of all, I don't, I, I don't, uh, I, I don't view most people as idiots. Um, so, you know, even <laughs> my most like condescending voice, I don't have it. Um, that, was, yeah. that was a self-description, yeah. by the way. Uh -huh. But uh, yeah, no. Um, uh, but I think, um, so you bring up a few things and uh, it might be worth just sort of addressing them in points. One, I, I, I think that like as a, as a society, we do generally, sometimes we underappreciate how much of science is actually still appreciated by society. And there are a number of hot topics that are um, very contentious where it feels like people are either ignoring uh, scientific intuition or they're ignoring a set of data that ought to be uh, paid attention to. But at the end of the day, we are in a, culture that by and large does appreciate science. Like no one's not getting on airplanes because they're worried about them falling out of the sky. Um, so I think that that baseline level of appreciation for science is always appreciated. How do I sell the value of my work to the average population? <clears throat> Honestly, I just tell them I help computers monitor people and like I help them monitor people. And that's a really easy sell. Um, you know, it, it's, it is an easy sell. It's like, yes, computers they're basically like spiders. They can just sort of sit there and wait for something to sort of shake the web and they're ready to pounce. And so I think that that aspect, that's a very easy sell. It's, I think it's an easier sell than saying, you know, I help design clickbait or I do A versus B testing on you know, Facebook or something like that. So that aspect is immensely easy. I think that there is one issue that is a bit, that, that is challenging and something that I'm still trying to sort of sort out in my head where, um, there is a conflict between two things when we say, oh, well, why don't people listen to scientists more versus why don't we listen to data? And the problem with that sort of sort of uh, black and white sort of comparison is that the data isn't all, data can lie and the data isn't always correct. And the fact is we do understand that there are some uh, mechanisms. There's some physiological mechanisms versus biological mechanisms, epidemiological mechanisms. And if you, and the data can actually conflict with what those intuitions are. Um, so I think, for example, one of the biggest challenges is when we have uh, uh, disagreeing information from an epidemiological level versus a, um, a clinical level. So a quick example might be there, there, was a, there, there was a time 
during, uh, I guess, when COVID was rolling out, where someone said, you know, like, oh, well, there's, there's no evidence that masks work. And you can, well, just, I'm really pushing this thing back to like February and March. And so the, the thing is, I say, it's like, at that time, February and March, yeah, I bet there wasn't any evidence because there wasn't any evidence of anything. There's no real data. But mechanistically, there's no reason to believe that they wouldn't be beneficial. You know, it's literally you have this physical structure that prevents the exhale of the viral particles to go to somebody else. You know that if another person only gets infected if they reach a certain level of viral load within their own system. And so you could say, yes, there's probably no data about this right now, um, especially not on the epidemiological level and not the population-based level, and certainly not on the patient-specific level. At the same time, the mechanism is understood well enough that we should go with the mechanism. And I think that's something that I, we should really be trying to extract um, where I know people like the term data-driven science. I'm not a big fan, actually, of the data-drivenness of science. I think we need theory-laden science. I think we need theory-driven science, and then we can sort of make sure that the data goes around that, but there is an interplay there. The data doesn't tell you everything. Theory doesn't obviously tell you everything. Also, there's a lot of mechanisms we don't understand, like what I just described. But yeah, I think that essentially this conflict between people saying like, why aren't they listening to this piece of data that seems so fundamental, or why aren't they listening to this expert? It is because there are a series of conflicts between this mechanistic understanding and the empirical data that's showing up. That plus, you know, sometimes it's just fun to ignore people. But, you know, still there's that issue where I, I think there's a conflict here that is being under-described. And, um, you know, there's a difference. There's a reason why chemistry isn't just applied physics. There's the reason why epidemiology isn't just applied biology. Um, and so there's a reason why clinical studies aren't just applied biology. And so I think we are coming at a crux. Healthcare is the crux of this thing where mm -hmm. a lot of these subject matters actually we reach the mechanistic um, and sort of evidential conflicts between these different studies. And when you have something like a pandemic, that's when all these subjects are coming together. I hope, I hope that uh, answers your question. Sounds to me like you're in the right job. <laughs> <laughs> Before we go, you mentioned a podcast at the top of this. Do you want to give a shout out? I'm making you talk about your podcast because I am scared of pronouncing the name of, <laughs> of it. So I'm going to make you do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, so um, it's called uh, the pod of Asclepius. Um, so obviously it is a pun off of the rod of Asclepius. And the idea is it is a uh, data science healthcare podcast. And so effectively, like the conversations that we're just having, the issues I'm talking about and the difference between our mechanistic understanding of these phenomena versus the data-driven understanding of these phenomena. Back when I was in Oxford, when I got my first sort of successful patent, and my supervisor saw, oh, Glenn can think scientifically and he's useful. Um, the next thing, as well as John probably knows, the next thing when you have a doctoral student who can do something you like, uh, you start having them talk to other doctoral students uh, to sort of start that conversation with other people. And many of the same conversations were happening over and over again. We're covering the same topics, uh, issues like what do you actually know versus what are you inferring from data? Um, what do you logically know about the mathematics of your algorithm? that would mean that this algorithm wouldn't work uh, from the get-go. You know, data scientists were highly paid people. Hours that we waste are expensive hours. And so I think that there's a lot of time wasted going off in these wrong tracks. Some of them aren't avoidable, others are. But to get back to things, I wanted to start having those conversations where more people could hear. Uh, mm -hmm. Particularly early career data scientists, I think that there is a difference. You know, I, you talked to Andrew, Andrew Gelman. There's a difference between reading Andrew Gelman's book 
and hearing them talk in a presentation. And I bet anything that there's a difference between hearing them talk in a presentation and having a one-to-one -one conversation with him. And I think that's, that's the truth in these topics a lot where there's a lot of intuition and there's a lot of sort of institutional knowledge that's lost via our medium of communication. And so I think that that's important. Very quickly, I actually doubled down on that subject. Um, and we currently are doing this thing called the philosophy of data science, uh, which mm -hmm. is effectively, I wanna get back to the topic of scientific reasoning in data science, because I think a lot of it, no offense to our field, but I think it's been lost. There's so much going on. We do have to keep track of a lot. We have to keep a lot of track of math on a lot of new models. We have to keep up to date with the news. We have to keep up to date with the data. And we do tend to, I think we've lost a little bit our scientific reasoning foundations. Um, and so that's, I want to give a podcast dedicated to that. So including things like the basics, inductive reasoning, deductive reasoning, adductive reasoning, and how do they actually play in data science? Because I think that there are elements of critical reasoning that we don't appreciate that we've overlooked. My, my biggest flaw is that I tend to overlook, for example, uh, mathematical guarantees of algorithms. I tend not to value them because I think that the assumptions get violated so quickly that they never play out. Whereas, um, you know, someone like Cynthia Rune, who I believe uh, her first big contribution was essentially identifying a new deductive guarantee in an algorithm. She has a lot to share with that. And so effectively something that she's very strong with, uh, Cynthia Rune, well, she's strong with a lot of things, but she's, she's, she's strong with that. And so of course, that's a blind spot for me. It would be helpful to have a conversation. And so I think that basically trying to have those conversations about what are the blind spots in data mm -hmm. scientists' um, current perspective um, is important. And I guess just one final example before we run out of time, you know, I think a lot of early career data scientists think that they need to learn a huge number of models in order to be good. You have to understand all the complex models. What's, what's Neil Gaiman's or Andrew Ng's most complex model today? I'm, I got to learn that one next. And I don't think that that's the most valuable use of their time. It might be valuable some of the time, but honestly, I think there's a lot else at play that can help you add value and not make you feel like you're constantly having to play catch up to the experts in your field. You can quickly become an expert in your field as long as you're a good, reasonable scientist. And I think you become a scientist faster than you can become a great statistician. Well, Glenn, thank you so much uh, for taking time to talk with us today. Thank you so much. I appreciate uh, having me on and I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Glenn. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.